if you take one of our own models, like, I don't know, the five phases, you know, they are five movements. And <laughs> these energies or energetic tendencies or material qualities are all present all the time, clearly, and they're all doing their stuff. It's just that at certain times we're more open or aware of the function of one over another or alongside another. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I'm going to keep this short today as I picked up a wind dryness that has rather played havoc with my respiratory system. So the windpipes are not in their prime form today. I want to start today with one of the gnarly questions that I picked up from Uncle Seth's book, This is Marketing. You ready for this? How can you show your generosity without discounting your prices? Isn't that a delicious question? We usually think of a discount as showing generosity, but look around and you'll see that discounts aren't really about generosity. They're more about an attempt to win the race to the bottom by offering a product or service for less money. As if price and value were the same thing. They're not. Next week, I'll be back with some examples that I found about being generous without discounting my clinical fees. And if you have some thoughts about how you express generosity in your practice, I'd love to know more about your perspective. You can write me here at the podcast. I'll share your thoughts on the next show. Hi there. This is Sharon Weisenbaum. I'm the director of White Pine Healing Arts Clinic and White Pine Institute. I'd like to share today a pair of herbs that I use often in the clinic when I'm treating coughs. The pair of herbs is Bai Shao and Gansao, Shaoyao Gansao Tong. And this pair is really fantastic to add to formulas when the cough has a spastic, paroxysmal, kind of hacking, irritated, won't stop quality to it. I'd like to share later in the show where I got this trick and how you might find out more. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. 
Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. got Nigel Dawes with me today. Nigel is a longtime practitioner. He's got a lot of experience in Japan. He's got a lot of hands-on, literally hands-on experience with palpation, with diagnosis. He's done some wonderful writing. He's done a lot of teaching. Today, we're going to have a little conversation about how we make sense of things, how we navigate the intersection between what we've been taught and what we're experiencing in the moment. Some time ago, I ran across an article of his in The Lantern. I want to read you just a short little piece because this totally got my attention and then got me on the phone to Nigel going, hey, how about a podcast conversation? Nigel writes this in his article from The Lantern. I often waver between privileging the evidence I have experienced firsthand in the presence of a patient versus that which has been transmitted through teachers, texts, related disciplines, and other received wisdom emulating from the general discourse of East Asian medicine. Oh, man. I don't know about you guys. I struggle with this kind of stuff. I don't know if it's a struggle, but I experience this all the time. There's the noise in my head, and then there's what's happening right in front of me. So, Nigel, I'm delighted to be able to sit down with you today and chew this stuff over. Welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Yes, likewise. It's great to have an opportunity to talk finally we've uh, been in contact over the years but nothing like a little chat over some coffee exactly yeah i mean we often do this over tea but hey we're we're living in america <laughs> coffee baby i've been 25 years in the states i'm i'm a convert <laughs> so you do a lot of touch and palpation and sensing I mean, there's so many ways that we can use our sensorium to get experience and to get information about how we work with people. And and yes, I'm so curious to know more about your thoughts on striking that balance between what's happening in the moment and really how do you tease that apart from the constant ongoing dialogue in our head of, oh, this teacher said that and this book says this and and privileging that over something else that might be arising through the experience that we're having with people? That's probably the question, isn't it, for, for us clinicians, is uh, there's a hell of a lot going on. Hopefully there's a lot going on in your head as you start to capture images from, from all kinds of uh, both sensory and intellectual sources uh, when you're spending time with somebody. And uh, that noise is, is kind of building and crescendoing all the time. And some parts of it are screaming louder than others and uh, sometimes you're not even sure where the thoughts and feelings are coming from but uh, you got to make sense of them that's certainly true i think in terms of your question i don't know that it's a planned thing i often reflect on my own uh, my own education and my own you know coming into this field and <laughs> frankly i'm just really happy that it happened in a very uh, spontaneous unplanned way because it did and you know, I found myself in Japan and not at all to study this medicine of ours, but to do other things. And 
uh, I kind of fell into it. And I guess what I'm getting at here is that my first introduction to the medicine was through shiatsu, actually, which became my, my first love. And in many ways, when I think back uh, in relationship to your question about that experience, you know, I'm really happy that that's the way it happened for me personally, because I came from a background of literature, actually, and I did a comparative literature degree and stuff like that. And that was, of course, based so much on intellectual understanding and analytical work and making sense of things through thinking. Here I was in the Shiatsu class where all of that stuff was out the window. And in fact, we were encouraged very actively to not engage even with with the literature of the medicine itself initially, but to just sort of feel things. And we used to literally have classes where it was just either working on someone else or being worked on and, and not really allowed to ask that many questions. And I'm sort of reminded that at the time that wasn't so appealing to me. <laughs> I remember being pretty frustrated by that and thinking like, shit, what, why can't I ask some questions here? You know? I mean, of course you're being asked to use a completely different way of experiencing the world. Right. Especially to me. I mean, I suppose I wouldn't have called myself by any means an intellectual, but I, I certainly had that tendency to come at things with an inquiring mind more than anything. And, you know, I was physical in some ways. I did a lot of sport and all that kind of stuff at school, but nothing, nothing that could compare with this kind of very deliberate, very specific approach to using parts of your body to apply pressure and, and, and connect with another person and, and sort of sense things as you as you move through and work with them. So that was all new to me. I'm not saying by this that if you didn't have that introduction to this medicine, if you didn't come at it through that sort of sensorial experience first before you start intellectualizing about it, that, that somehow you're at a disadvantage. There are many ways to come at it, but I'm just saying that was my experience. And on reflection, I'm really happy it happened that way because I think it was very good for me to learn how to subjugate the tendency to rationalize and, and interpret before I could even walk with the, the actual mechanics of it. You know, that makes so much sense. And I'm, I mean, it resonates for me coming at things more from an intellectual bend, more from a mental model bend. I love seeing how things go together in my mind. And it's very satisfying when you see that unfold in the clinic as well. Oh yeah, they talk about this in the Shanghai Lun, blah, blah, blah. You know, I see it in my clinic. It's very, very satisfying. And yet there's these other ways that we have really of sensing, sensing more than thinking. And, and I get it that you say you're so happy and, and lucky really that circumstances arose that allowed you to notice there's this whole other way of paying attention to the world. Yeah, and I suppose if we wanted to be doused about it, I, I expect it probably wasn't entirely by accident. I think in some ways I left full-time education in, in the West with a kind of, you know, a kind of yearning for something different, for sure. I mean, I didn't go to Japan just for, for to, to go to the beach, and it wasn't that kind of place. Uh, Japan in the 80s was, was an expensive proposition for most backpackers so yes it wasn't on the on the backpacking circuit that's for sure it was it was full of even very few foreigners at the time but those that were there were usually engaged in something it might have been music or might have been martial arts or different kinds of practices that were traditional to that country but so yeah i'm sure there was a part of me that was looking for something and probably for something that was pretty different to my experience in education up to that point so i guess it wasn't a total accident but um I couldn't have predicted the way it would work out. I think this touches in a bit on our subject today, which is sometimes there's some stuff that guides us, but we don't know it's guiding us. I'm not given to a lot of speculation about things that are, uh, would be difficult to evaluate in a concrete way. I'm talking now about, I mean, I've certainly had experiences in my life that were are and remain completely unexplainable <laughs> with any logical mind. And I had one or two very extreme cases of that. But And I'm certainly open to whatever they might have been. But yes, I'm not generally given to past life thinking and you know whatever else we might speculate about in terms of destiny and so on and so forth. But 
Yeah, I, I'm sure that there's an, an inner voice that, or part of us at all times that is, is closed, just like there are other parts that are open. But that doesn't mean they're not working. It's kind of like if you take one of our own models, like, I don't know, the five phases, you know, they are five movements. And these energies or energetic tendencies or material qualities are all present all the time, clearly, and they're all doing their stuff. It's just that at certain times we're more open or aware of the function of one over another or alongside another. So there's not an absence of that, we could say, or we could reflect on thinking it might be hidden to us, but yes, and it might be, but it's still working there. So yeah, I think trying to remain open to it, and then I suppose the only other way of getting at it is to reflect and think back to things that happened and realize that, yeah, possibly there, there was something at work there that had a purpose that you were not at the time very consciously aware of. Well, I'm, I'm a bit like you too in that, that whole idea about past life might be guiding something. I, I got enough to deal with in this one life. I'm not worried about <laughs> what else there might be. And it's always Bodicea. Why, why, you know, you're always Bodicea or someone very famous or someone <laughs> in the past life, right? You couldn't have been just Joe Blow down the road. You had to be someone. Uh, oh, no, I was definitely Joe Blow down the road. I mean, yeah, I would have been too. Who else would I be? <laughs> but, you know, when you see someone, a medium or whoever, and they, they tell you, you would see some, someone famous, you know. Anyway. <laughs> so, you know, back to this this part of us that senses but doesn't necessarily think, right? There's this information that comes in. I suspect you have this happen in your practice. There are moments something will come through. Maybe you're you're touching a patient. Maybe you're talking with them. Maybe you're taking the pulse. Maybe they just walk in and you just notice how they walk in. I mean, it these things come through all kinds of channels, and something just kind of goes click in your head and it sets you off on a on a certain way. You know, it's not like oh, I'm following this theory. In fact, often when I think oh, I'm, the theory says X Y Z, I know I'm lost. But it's more like like you catch the scent of something. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, Michael, I think it's as important to be willing to go with that. So those are the two things. I mean, catching the scent, I think, yeah, it is an acquired ability, I suppose, over time. But I think most of us, in fact, I'm sure everybody is perfectly able to, if they're open enough to catch the scent, the, the sticking with it and the willingness to go with it, that's a little bit more tricky. I think it's a bit more of an acquired a graft in a way to 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 uh, because sometimes those scents uh, seem very irrational they might at first glance or seem very irrational and then there may be a little, the other little voice that goes no 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 you know that's crazy no but going down that path uh, and being willing to go is is um, yeah it's something you have to sort of I think surrender to I don't, I don't think there's any way around that and I'm talking now about using what sensing I mean for me I do use the five element paradigm a lot in my internal world, if you like. To me, relating to the different elements, the different movements, as it were, of energy, most of them actually, to my mind, have very little to do with analytical or processing parts of our being. In fact, if you think about fire and water and, and wood and metal, to me, all of those four have to do with the fire water side is the knowing part, the empathic knowing from the heart and the you know, intuitive, innate knowledge that we acquire through, you know, the water energy versus that sensory, hun, seeing beyond kind of knowledge from the liver and the the actual fleshy, concrete sensitivity that we get from the, the metal elements. So all of those sources of knowing, in a sense, to me, are not process-orientated, process-driven. But, of course, you've got the hub of the wheel, which is the earth, and there we find in our theoretical constructs we find that relationship to the intelligent mind to the processing element and to conceptual thinking and all that but to me that earth element although it's the hub it doesn't dominate the other things in fact those that are moving around the hub are in a sense the primary kind of raw origins of how we experience things so you know if there's a privilege at all in that sense i think you know, our knowing things starts with sensing and in, intrinsically or empathically knowing without actually yet really understanding. It's such a succinct description. 
of how these processes actually work inside of us. For myself, I remember first starting to study Chinese medicine. There's the five phases. You know, it's this lovely poetic thing. I like the way it hangs together. It's, it's, it's satisfying because it's beautiful and because it talks about resonance and you can kind of see how it interweaves through various aspects of life. And, that, and that's one way of approaching it. What I just heard you talking about is not a mental model of thinking about how that works, but it, it's actually living inside of it and following these things as they arise and fall away. Yes, I agree with you. It's, a, it's an internal lived experience um, that, you know, if you work with it, just like anything, it becomes a skill where although you're not always in control, hopefully, of all of those aspects of the way in which you experience any given moment, nonetheless, you're aware of them. That's to say, you know, when I walk in the room, I'm working with a patient, I'm aware and I get a strong sense of those different energetic expressions of experience. When I'm touching, I'm touching. And it's like a very direct, earthy, concrete, fleshy thing that um, hopefully I'm not thinking too much about. As I'm touching, I might get a sense or flashes or moments of seeing something or thinking I see something that is not exactly tangible, but it, it would require me to sort of Surrender to that, yes, that seeing beyond, as we say, with the, with the wood element, the ability to go beyond what's right in front of you. And that's all couched in whether or not you can be, you know, empathic and warm and, you know, full of some kind of compassion towards the work you're doing and whether or not you're willing to go with that kind of uh, underlying blueprint that is driving the whole thing anyway, which we don't fully understand, which is the water, of course, the the whole uh, machinery that's behind the wisdom, if you like, that kind of gets us up in the morning and gets us to do things. So all of that's sort of going on. But like I said, I'm not controlling that, but I try in my work to be conscious of the different component parts of what is, of course, a total experience. But nonetheless, I find useful to be able to separate out into these different types of sensory and knowing experience. Behind all of that, if you like, is this kind of big, you know, <laughs> the medulla, some some kind of big cognitive machine that's kind of sucking that all in, absorbing, if you like. The earth is just absorbing all of that and kind of swirling it around and trying to figure things out, and, but not controlling it. So, yeah, when I work, I, I really do have a ongoingly and slowly uh, and even gradually more developed sense of those different parts of me working together. And I find that really helpful, actually. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I've heard you use this term, and I think I might have even said it in this conversation, surrender, that there's a certain kind of surrender. Now, I know growing up here in the West, especially as a male, surrender is not something that we're told is necessarily a good thing, right? It's something that, you know, in my growing up, you don't want to surrender. You want to get your hands on something and be in charge. 
Yes, I think you're right. I mean, in our culture, certainly the, well, not just our culture. I mean, heaven knows the Japanese culture above all has um, certainly had its history and experience of, you know, equating surrender with defeat. So, you know, it's not a uniquely Occidental thing by any means. But yeah, I think it's a human thing. But especially, I think you, you pointed to it, the gender issues is an interesting one. That's a cross-cultural issue, obviously. And in different cultures, that genderized, you know, particularly the male yang, if you like, energy is not supposed to surrender, yes. I guess it's, it's, it comes down to how you relate to that word and how you feel that to be in, in real terms. Like, what does it mean to surrender? Like, given experience, like working with a patient, what, what would it mean as a practitioner to surrender? I don't think, I don't think it means letting the patient do what the hell they want, or, or regardless without any comment. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean, I guess, an ontologically surrendering, meaning like your own ideas are certainly going to flow and all sorts of things will come to you. But there needs to be a willingness, I think, to let them go at some point. And maybe not. Some of them you'll hold on to, and some of them will actually turn out to be pretty useful, hopefully. And, of course, when I say useful, that means there'll be some results that are, you know, empirically, you know, like a litmus test that you can actually test out. In other words, the patient will get better or they'll experience some improvement or something. But some of there's a good portion of those thoughts, feelings, senses, whatever, that you'll have to, in a sense, surrender because then they're not going to lead you anywhere. And, uh, you know, getting stuck on them was probably going to take you down paths that will just have no issue, basically. So I think this surrender is mostly in, in terms of your own internal dialogue, that some of your ideas, thoughts, and feelings are going to be both authentic and accurate and useful, and some are not, frankly. And probably most are not. <laughs> Well, this is the thing that I find so challenging and, and at the same time a fantastic aspect of practice, which is a lot of my thoughts and feelings are really wrong. And and often there's a lot of getting it wrong on the way to getting it right. There's a lot of that. And I think the, the willingness to, of course, try things out because there's a relationship between, you know, if you don't try many things out, you're less likely to be wrong because you... <laughs> You haven't really tried out much yet. So, so the, the failing, if you like to call it failing, or the, the moving down the path that you realize later on was probably not the right one to choose, is premised on the fact that you need to be experimental. I mean, you need to try things out. And that's the tricky, I think I'm with you on that. I think that's I had what, you, what you were saying I understood to be related to this thing of, you know, the, almost like the, the paradox between you know, not wanting to get things wrong, but at the same time, you know, realizing that if you don't try things out, <laughs> you're not likely to get things right either. Exactly. And furthermore, when you are trying something out, I remember this from early in, in my training, there were certain teachers that said, if you're not sure which way to go, choose one way and go at it directly. Because if they get better, you'll know that what you did was helpful. And if they get worse, you'll have more information about their condition so you can help them later. That resonates exactly with my practice, certainly my herbal practice particularly. One of the reasons for that, I would say, is is the style of herbs that I practice could be, I guess, generally referred to as somewhat classical in origin. Uh, you know, the Campo system is based, as you know, on, on the Han Dynasty medicine mostly, and Han Dynasty herbal practice in particular. And, and I would claim, I think, I think others might agree, that... Um, that practice is pretty narrow in terms of a diagnostic paradigm and also a treatment modality, meaning a herbal formula. So narrow, what I mean by that is they're small formulas, they're pretty succinct, and their therapeutic target is pretty narrow, which, of course, therefore requires a very, a very particular diagnostic trajectory. It can't be wide. You know, you're not, you don't have the machine gun. You've got the, you've got the revolver, as it were. <laughs> I hate the analogy, but um, no, it's a great revolver. I like it better than laser. Right, got uh, a revolver. <laughs> so, uh, so of course, you know, being on target is is pretty critical. Otherwise, it's likely that formula will either cause adverse responses or just won't work at all. But if you think about the flip side of that, if you're working with known entities that have a narrow therapeutic trajectory, 
And if you accept, as, as I certainly do, that the likelihood of you really understanding that patient the first visit absolutely accurately is pretty low, then you're only left with the possibility of intelligent experimentation. You, you've got to try things out. But your point is to the point, which is to say, don't, that doesn't mean experiment all over the place. It means taking a particular direction, acknowledging and understanding and making a note of what that direction is, which of course will and should make you already anticipate the potential result if you're correct, if your hypothesis is accurate, and potentially the adverse responses if you're actually wrong. So, and then you have the next visit. And the next visit, you'll either learn, as you say, from your mistakes or from something that you did somewhat, somewhat accurately. So yes, keeping that focus uh, narrow but deep and committing it to it completely and fully and following it through and then reevaluating is, to my mind, the only sensible way to go. Well, it seems to also give a grounding to the unknowing because we're constantly working in a, in a complete ocean of unknowing and we get glimpses of what might be going on. You know, we're, we're looking for the evidence to prove ourselves right, or we're just looking for the evidence to understand. Well, actually, here's a thought. It's a question, and, and this is a question I have in clinic a lot. Am I looking for the evidence that proves me right, because I think I'm right, or am I looking for the evidence of what's present, because I actually don't know what I'm looking at? I certainly would be inclined to live more with the, the, the second part of what you said. I would assume that for the most part, I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, even though some things will might strike you, you know, very clearly, uh, even at the first instance, either a thought, either a, something the patient said, or a visual aspect, or a tact. It doesn't matter which aspect. There may be several. So some things might strike you. You know, but perhaps the patient is. I don't know. Let's take an example. They they have uh, they have morning heavy fatigue and heaviness in their body and uh, it's worse after eating and they feel foggy minded and they you know and you might be going oh spleen. You, know, that you have an association that makes sense. But holding on to that, and once you start to nail that down or, or start to believe in that as a fundamental you know, basis for what you might do, then you're already closing things down very quickly. So there's this constant, really quite delicate interplay between, yes, interpreting, we can't help that. It's, you know, information comes, we, we're primed to interpret. That's what we spent a long time training to do. But you have to kind of, however you find your way to do it, but you have to kind of encapsulate and hold that particular interpretation, almost like, I imagine sometimes like bubbles, you know, like uh, in Zen practice, we talk about the bubbles that rise in consciousness to the surface. And they're all kind of floating there. And, oh, there's another one. And you pop that in. And so it's in your sphere. It's in your cognitive sphere but you're not attached to it at that moment because you know what, there's more coming. And some of those ones that come after may conflict with the ones that went before. And then you have a second job to do, which is try to figure out which one sounds more convincing and so on. So yes, you're kind of, it's like the plates in the air, you know, the, the old Chinese you know, twirling plates on the end of the bamboo sticks, right? You're kind of keeping them all spinning there. And, um, you're not attaching to any particular one until, you know, you obviously have to make a decision at the end. But um, that's a tricky, tricky business, keeping those plates spinning. <laughs> and it gets into this kind of dichotomy of, on one hand, we want to nail things down so we know what to do. And at the same time, remain open to any new information that might be coming in. But at a certain moment, we do have to nail it down, right? At a certain point. You know, needles need to go in and a prescription needs to be made up. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, again, I, I refer to my own, my own training where I would say, in a way, it was kind of a slightly schizophrenic type of training <laughs> experience <laughs> because in some ways, the predominantly tactile-based work in shiatsu particularly, but also in the style of acupuncture they practice, the meridian therapy style, I would say, by and large, most of my, the impressions that were instilled in me by various teachers was to 
always place the sensory experience first and always distrust any thoughts and feelings and analytical attempts to understand that came after those feelings. So, to, you know, just keep, keep amassing and piling up the sensory experience and that somehow by a slightly amorphous mechanism, but somehow things would become clear inside the sensory world itself without attachment to explanation. Whereas in the Kempo system, that's not exactly practiced that way. So I say schizophrenic because in some ways, once I started to get into the herbal side of what I do, I started to learn that, you know, at some point, as you say, although you try to stay with and there is a sensory component in the Kempo system, of course, because we use the abdomen a lot in tactile assessment. Uh, so we do start very often from that point of view. However, quite quickly, there's quite a lot of decisions to be made about trajectories of formulas. And so it is in that sense, I guess, there's more of an intellectual bias to it. So yes, you're right. You gotta, at the end of that one hour, when you've, you know, you've taken out the last needles and the patient's ready to go, you're gonna have, you have to give them a formula and that's the formula you're prescribing. And you know, you gotta make your decision as to why and your rationale as to why and what to expect and then return it. And in fact, I mean, just as an aside, and, and this is not a criticism, it's an observation I've had. Well, I guess it is a criticism in a way. <laughs> I'll allow myself to say. Um, but it's an observation I, I certainly have from some of my uh, years as supervising in clinics in various different settings that uh, certainly within the, I'm not sure that it's exclusive to the, what we now know as the TCM system, but certainly in the clinics that I observe in that tradition, students were continuously reluctant to arrive at a herbal decision. Whereas they'd been treating the patient with needles, so the patient was on the table and then they finish up. But they, they found it routinely almost impossible to reach a rational clinical decision on the herbs within the time frame that they had. Um, and that's always intrigued me as, you know, as to why that is. Um, I'm not gonna say that I have an answer to that, question, but I certainly have my thoughts about it, one of which is related to the belief that somehow, and as a student, I can I, I would always defend students in that regard. I think if they have that belief, it's unlikely that they created it. It's probably being instilled in them by someone else, that they should get it right. I, I feel strongly that one of the major, and I think it is a fact, one of the major reasons for the fact that a lot of our ON graduates, even today, as smart and brilliant as they may well be, and many of them are, often don't really practice herbs when they graduate, which is to me a fundamental, you know, very surprising, you know, almost horrifying. You know, they spent four years and a lot of money and they're, they're smart A students, and a lot of them, you know, maybe start to do a few patent medicines here and there and this and that, but, you know, real in depth, personalized prescription of herbs, whether they're using, you know, classical formulas or whether they're prescribing, you know, compounding, um, it's quite a small percentage. I don't know that um, there are actual ed exit polls from schools to, to establish exactly what that would be, but I, my guess is it's not very high. So I came to the conclusion a while ago that it's got nothing to do with intelligence or ability, but something to do with this, you know, this belief that somehow, yes, they Herbs are tricky. We shouldn't experiment with them. They could be dangerous. So you know what? If we're not sure, don't do anything. Something like that. And so there's some bias towards this, in herbs at least, unwillingness to, I don't want to use the word experiment because that sounds a little bit too open-ended. But You used this great phrase a few minutes ago, intelligent experimentation. Yes. Intelligent experimentation, mm -hmm. experimenting based on your knowledge, which is, you know, Limited. A, a standard OM program in this country is pretty, is pretty, pretty, uh, you know, certainly established enough to, to get you to a level where you, you, you know, you're not going to make irrational, unintelligent decisions, but that, that you, you realize in making the decision that you're making, nonetheless, making it with incredible, I would say, uh, not arrogance and certainty, but with conviction, let's use that word. Meaning that you have a rationale for doing what you're doing. At the same time, without doubting yourself in the sense of undermining yourself, you are in the full awareness that that could well be 
not the right decision to be making. However, on the back of that, you say to yourself, I'm going to see this patient in a week or 10 days or less, and I know what to look for, and I know if I was wrong, what will happen. And I know what I'm going to do next in that case, or at least I have a good idea, because I'm going to learn from that experience. And uh, it seems to me that just judging, I don't know because I'm not in, internally involved with school so much anymore, so I, don't, I can't say from first-hand experience of seeing this, but it seems to me from looking at the end result, which is graduates in practice, that they don't, they don't seem to have been educated in that way, to, to be willing to go with the very well-rationalized clinical decision and to stick by it and then to observe carefully and be willing to learn from their mistakes and move forward like that. Do you think that is a teachable skill? I, did, I think so, too. Absolutely. It's absolutely a teachable skill. And the thing that you bring up about getting it right, oh, my God, because we are taught to get it right. And here's the other thing. We want to get it right. We're taught we should get it right. We hear all the stories of how those idiots over there didn't get it right, and that's why they're now in our office. And there's the ego piece of, yeah, I want to be right. And there's the part of your, you know, just having a good business. It's like, yeah, see, I get it right more. So I get more patients. And so I can pay off my loans. There's a, we have a lot invested in getting it right. Yes, that is so true. And it's like instilled in us that if we're going to be a decent practitioner, you got to get it right. Again, we do want to get it right, but somehow being able to hold that lightly enough that we can navigate all the ways we're getting it wrong. And like we're just talking about with give a herbal prescription, knowing that it might go this way, knowing it might go that way. There's a, a book that I was introduced to when I first got to Taiwan, which name I can't remember. It's, it's actually written by a Japanese guy. It was, it was translated into Chinese and that's how I read it. Um, actually, I think, was it Otsuka? It might've been your guy. Yes, he was quite well known in, in Taiwan, I think. Yeah, because yeah, it, you know, it might have been. I, but the thing that I remember, there were these great case studies, and this guy was transparent and hilarious because he would write about that he, you know, he felt this, he noticed that, and he thought, oh, yeah, this, this prescription for this person. Or he'd write about, I wasn't sure what to do. I mean, he'd actually write this in his case notes. I wasn't sure what to do. Actually, he's got this 30 years of Campo case studies translated now in English. So it sounds like that. It's, it's, if you read those cases, yeah. It was like delightful <laughs> because, number one, he's being transparent with his uncertainty, which we all experience. And secondly, he talk about giving someone a prescription and thinking, you know, in waking up in the middle of the night and going, oh, my God, what have I done? Right. If I'm wrong, it's going to go this way. And then, you know, the patient comes back a few days later, turns out, it didn't go wrong. And he goes, ah, it's great. I discovered that XYZ formula also can be used for this other thing. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yes, that's a truly uh, in the moment kind of approach, although it's based on, of course, we understand this, I think. It, it has to be based on a detailed and thorough and, you know, into the bones level of understanding of, what, you know, the substances you're using and and so on and so forth. It's not, <laughs> it doesn't, it's not a, just a, a statement placed out there. Yes. No, no, no. I mean, this guy was not shooting from the hip and he had a moment of not quite sure. And, and again, he was incredibly transparent in his, in his writing about that uncertainty. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I can say from, from my own practice these days that uh, if, I, if I was to stop and think about you know, how to characterize my practice. It's, it's a difficult thing to do, but uh, maybe it'd be better to ask others that know me to characterize it because they could probably see clearer than I could. But I mean, I would say that I tend to see a lot of long-term patients, patients that come over years rather than months. That's certainly one feature. I, I would say that I see very minimal amounts of short-term, let's say, orthopedic type of work. I do a lot more internal medicine, maybe because of the herbs, I don't know. But what I wanted to get to is this business about you're talking about, right, you know, getting it right. I mean, there's so many ways that we could, and our patients would, I think, um, try to define what that means, getting it right. I, I think the obvious 
answer that we would think as clinicians to ourselves is, is that, you know, the person will get better. They would, they would improve. Their, their health would improve in some way, some tangible way. And that seems, you know, pretty fair. But I think there are a lot of other dimensions. You know, I, I can think of patients I've been working with for sometimes years who, you know, they haven't got better, um, except that they have in certain aspects of their general health. Health is not one thing. I mean, they, I should say it more clearly. There may be individuals I'm thinking of now that whose main complaint did not really transform that much. I'm thinking particularly of, you know, let's say, a chronic recalcitrant degenerative disease. It's not really going to, you know, it may slow down the progression or something like that. ALS or some other patients come to mind. So, you know, the main reason they came to see me um, you know, that's progressing, hopefully slower than it might otherwise have done, but it's still progressing. But there's so many other levels in which something is going right for them. Otherwise, I don't think they would be back. You know, it's like, there's emotional levels, there's psycho psychological levels, there's all kinds of interactive levels that we work on that don't have only to do with the nuts and bolts of, you know, main complaints and symptomology. And I say that with great respect to to the focus on symptoms because you know that's what bothers patients obviously and that's why they first come in. But I, I also see the bigger picture. You know, getting things right could mean a lot of things. I think uh, not just improvement of specific signs and symptoms. Hi, this is Sharon back again. I got the idea for using Xiaoyao Gansautong in formulas for spastic cough from a teacher named Dr. Yu Guozhen. I read about this use in his book called A Walk Along the River. Dr. Yu also uses this combination of herbs, Bai Xiao and Gansao, in formulas for constipation, for pain from urinary tract or kidney stones, even for herpatic lesions, or from the spastic feeling of not being able to stop scratching an itch. All of these disharmonies have in common that there is spasming going on. And when that spasming is going on, you can add Xiaoyaganzaotong to your formula and it will really augment the effect of that formula. The exciting news is that Dr. Yuko Jun is coming to Amherst, Massachusetts to teach for three days please check this out. It will be live and it will also be streamed live. So I really hope you can make it. I'm struck by your comment that health is not one thing. And one of the questions that I've had lately, I mean, it seems like such a simple thing. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. But I've been wondering lately, really, what's a good definition of health? I mean, what is health? Because I've seen people that have perfectly fine numbers on blood and hormones and, you know, all, all the tests and panels and scopes, everything looks fine and they're a mess. I've had other people that were in the process of dying. They were some of the most integrated, healthy people I've met. Yes, without a doubt. I mean, think of certainly of cancer patients that I've had, almost to the last one of them. Whether it's facing mortality, I, I don't know, prob probably, I would imagine. I mean, and when I say facing, not just as an idea, as a real uh, experience in your waking life, I think they either have the opportunity to transform me or, you know, succumbing, basically. And thankfully, many of them transform. They, 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 what I mean by that is to transform their entire way in which they relate to life and, and pretty much everything. And those patients are just, I mean, I learned so much from people like that. Perhaps cancer patients in particular are a good example of what I was saying before about, you know, I can't think of many cancers that I've actually treated, um, but I can think of many cancer patients. And obviously, then you're working on a number of different things, and you're working with them on all kinds of levels. You know, in the times that maybe you could link some of your work to an actual change in their, you know, cancerous state, that would that's extraordinary. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but um, yeah. Mm -hmm.
In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. And then I think there's also this idea that there's working with disease, i.e. cancer. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a classic, but there's also working with health. With health, yeah. There's working with the Zheng Qi, mm-hmm. which, I mean, we don't even have that idea in Western medicine, that there's something innate that's actually somehow whole and solid, even if you're sick. Well, we're getting to it, aren't we? I mean, in modern allopathic medicine, we're finally in certain subspecialties coming into, and since we've been talking about cancer briefly, I mean, that's one area, right? Immunology, cancer immunology, for example, where we're really starting to see that one way of approaching cancer treatment is cytotoxic, highly toxic drugs that can and certainly have been able to kill tumors, but they do a lot of damage. They have a lot of collateral damage. You know, that's a symbol, if you like, I mean, a metaphor in a way, of the fact that allopathic medicine itself is not is not you know ignorant of ways in which we can and we're beginning to think more about the person and how to in that case activate its you know the person's own immunological responses to illness rather than you know the phase post 19th century phase and the last 150 years or so where we've been so focused in allopathic you know, apathy on on the you know the disease causing agent. Yes, I mean, what WHO still has the definition of health as the absence of disease, and that's understandable. That's the way that we've always thought about it from that perspective. But I think it's changing. I think the traditional medicines, of which, of course, Chinese medicine is a very strong uh, example, uh, as you say, have always premised themselves on first of all trying to detect, sense, and characterize a person's intrinsic strength or weakness, their constitution, if you like, as well as the functioning of their systems in regard to resisting uh, both outside and internal attack by various uh, either substances or processes. So, But I don't think they're unique. In other words, I don't think those traditional systems are unique. I think the modern system of healthcare, although it's very flawed, um, is having some very cathartic wake-up moments uh, these days, which are quite exciting, actually, I think. But no, we, we, we in Chinese medicine certainly have, have that focus. And you know, I myself in my practice with in meridian therapy, for example, acupuncture style, we always do that root phase of the treatment, the first round of needles, which are focused entirely on, yes, zheng qi, as you say, the, the anti-pathogenic qi, as we call it. And uh, if you... Some people might disagree, but certainly my, I think, camper perspective on the Shang'an Lun and uh, the, the teachings from that period of Chinese history and herbs also, and you don't have to intellectualize about it, just look at the formulas and the way they're constructed. They, they all focus around the Zheng Qi, actually. They focus a lot more in terms of the use of middle jiao, warming, nourishing herbs that potentially enhance the uh, resistant Qi. In other words, working on the person's immune responses rather than necessarily the agents, which they then didn't characterize in the same way as we do now anyway. Obviously, they didn't talk about viruses and bacteria and parasites and so on, although they had a concept of pathogenic qi 
that's definitely our focus, I would say. Yeah. I'm curious, do you have a definition for health? What's your way of thinking about it? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, it's a tough I'm, a question, sort of, isn't it? I'm a part-time Buddhist. Let's start with that. <laughs> part-time <laughs> I mean, I Buddhist. I, I would love to call myself a Buddhist, and I'm certainly a Buddhist in spirit. And I did have at one time a fairly a fairly serious practice, certainly in Japan days. But I've sort of I'm a lapsed Buddhist. Let's put it like that. Um, but having having been exposed to that particular practice, um, and I'm not elevating it above other others. I'm just saying that's my experience of it. This Sanskrit word dukkha, isn't it? I think it is uh, suffering. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. This notion, once I came across it first the intellectual and then actually trying to sort of really you know, feel it in terms of daily life. It's a, it's a central human you know, experience. Uh, nobody can live their life without, without suffering. So I think to think about health as a total absence of suffering would be, first of all, ridiculous, but also maybe also not useful. I can't imagine if we didn't have challenges, how we would be as human beings. I'm not sure that we would evolve the same way at all, if at all. So health is not the absence of suffering, but I think there's levels of suffering that one can come to terms with and somehow embrace in a way that allow you to live your life to the full. And as you mentioned before, some cancer patients are very good examples of that, where they, you know, just even in the face of, you know, mortal danger, they, they're living a full life. And that seems to me to be really healthy. I mean, I suppose what I'm saying then is is to health is something about both embracing an element of suffering, but also knowing when it's something that shouldn't be embraced or put up with. So making those decisions between doing something to change things that would hopefully be an improvement in your health, uh, whatever that might be, versus other things that you basically need to come to terms with and embrace. I know that's a bit waffly, but that's something like the way that I would see it. Well, I think there's a lot of wisdom in, well, I mean, what is it? It's the serenity prayer or something like that. Of uh, There are things that can be changed. There are things that cannot be changed. Can we somehow have the clarity to know which is which? Yes. Yeah. I, think, I think that's absolutely what it comes to. Deep down. aspect to health. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because otherwise you inevitably make things worse. By that I mean if you're struggling against something that fundamentally is probably not going to change, that itself is a form of suffering. And uh, what comes to mind there, for example, is is certain patients maybe with what some would characterize as a psycho-emotional or psychological illness where there may be and I can think of examples of patients of mine, an aspect of their character that until they come to terms with in terms of both identifying and accepting, as long as they keep wanting to try to change it, there's no way out of that conundrum, you know, because it ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've seen some of the healthiest schizophrenics that I've ever treated who basically understood their illness very well and didn't like it but totally understood what it was and what they needed to do and didn't struggle against it and pretend to live a completely normal life. And I think they were healthier for, for doing that, for example. I feel like we've come full circle here and we're back to surrender. <laughs> yes. That we're back to surrender. And, and as you so eloquently pointed out, surrender is not necessarily defeat. No. Surrender is, this is what's present. Like I said, before surrender first of all i think is is not it's not in relationship to the other in my opinion because one might imagine that surrendering would involve some sort of conflict between two or more individuals and then there's a winner and there's a loser i'm i'm i always relate to surrender in this context just within myself the simplest example would be get up in the morning i kind of need to do my little bit of exercise 
I don't want to do it. I don't feel like it, <laughs> but I kind of know it's good. You know, you got to, that's a form of surrender. It's not a big example. It's not a difficult one particularly, but you know, it, it takes, it takes something to get to that point where you, you just know it's the thing you need to do. And that is a form of surrender, which has not got to do with being defeated because who's going to win from that? Only you who's going to, you know, benefit from that in the end. So, uh, yes, there is the kind of surrender that hopefully ends up in great benefit uh, to yourself. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Nigel, I have thoroughly enjoyed this hour with you. I can't believe the time has gone by as quickly as it has. That's incredible. Yeah, I know. Crazy, huh? Whoa. Well, <laughs> thankfully, I didn't get to reading any of my prepared little bits and pieces here. It was much nicer just to chat to you. Well, I'll tell you, the bits and pieces that you have written are delicious. And uh, for you all that are listening, Nigel's article, Evidence is More Valuable Than Logic, it was printed in The Lantern. I suspect you can get yourself uh, a copy of that if you talk to our friends at The Lantern about that. And if you're not a subscriber, you probably should be because it's an awesome magazine. Volume 9, number 1, January 2012. There it is. Unbelievable, right? <laughs> Long time ago. Yes. Sir. <laughs> well, Nigel, again, thanks for uh, sharing a conversation today. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. <laughs>